Welcome to the Wonder Learn Podcast. I'm your host, Francis Tapon. In this episode, I have Hal Urban, who is a good friend. He's also a patron of mine. You go to patreon.com slash ftapon. You can also become a patron. Hal Urban has just written a new book, and it's going to be coming out in May 2021. And I had a chance to talk with him about it. It's all about the power of good news. And that is something that is very timely for this year of 2020 already the fact that this year has been such a tough year in so many metrics so he's trying to get us to focus on the good news he's written a book called life's greatest lessons which sold half a million copies it's a fabulous book and he's written many other books he talks about the publishing process and many other things this episode before we get into it we will talk about our sponsors. So stay tuned for the sponsors and then we'll go right into the episode. Today's show is brought to you by Sawyer. Sawyer is the same guys that make the micro filters and water filters, but here's something else they do. Are you aware that Lyme disease, which is spread by ticks, is the fastest growing infectious disease in the United States and has been found in all 50 states? Lyme disease can cause neurological disorders such as Bell's palsy, Rocky Mountain spotted fever, and even severe allergies to red meat. That will make you a vegan. You never got to watch out for that. Sawyer's permethrin insect repellent repels and kills ticks, mosquitoes, and more than 55 other types of insects. It is designed for shoes, clothing, backpacks, and other outdoor gear, and will even be safe for your dog. It provides an odorless barrier for protection that lasts for up to six weeks and can go through the washing machine six times. If you use Sawyer's permethrin on your shoes, that makes you 74 times less likely to be bitten by a tick. Thanks to my sponsorship, be safe out there from the coronavirus and Lyme disease. Welcome to the Wander Learn Podcast. I'm your host, Francis Tapon. I'm here with Hal Urban. How are you, Hal? I'm good, Francis. <laughs> so, Hal, you and I have known each other for many years, and um, you were an inspiration to me because you self-published a book that ended up becoming a bestseller, uh, 20 of Life's Greatest Lessons, and it uh, was eventually bought by Simon & Schuster and did very well. And and you've published many books, some of them self-published, some of them traditionally published. And now, here at the, at the edge of the at the threshold of 2021, you've got a new book coming out. And tell us about that. Well, the the new book is is called the the Power of Good News, and it's something I've thought about writing for a long, long time. But I had some other commitments, and I've also decided to, my last three books were self-published. I went back to self-publishing and then I decided now that that's so much work that I decided to let somebody else do all the handling of the book. So I went back to uh, traditional uh, publishing, but I found a new publisher and I like them a lot. Okay, tell us about that process, about the decision-making process. One of the things I learned in self-publishing, if you have a market, uh, you're going to make a lot more money uh, in self-publishing because you have the books printed. Let's, let's say when I was doing Life's Greatest Lessons, I was having a bunch printed and uh, making, it cost me about a dollar a book, and then I would sell them for 15 and so that's a, obviously a huge uh, profit. 
the only difference is you have to pay all the money up front and then it's a lot of work in marketing, a lot of work in storage, a lot of work in shipping unless you get somebody else to do that. But the profit margin is really good and, and then I, uh, but when my first book, Life's Greatest Lessons, won, a, won an award, uh, Writer's Digest picked an inspirational book of the year. All the publishers, the reg mainline publishers that had turned me down before, now came back to me and asked, wanted to, wanted to publish. And I, I was always curious to see how it would do in the mainline publishing business. I had sold 65,000 copies of it when it was self-published, uh, but I was curious to see how it would do. And I had a number of offers and I went with Simon and Schuster because they had done the seven habits of highly effective people by Stephen Covey. And they had done the book of virtues. Uh, there were some other books that, that I really liked that they had done. So I figured, okay, I'll go with, I'll go with them. And so they offered me a big, uh, advance and, um, I I took it, but the thing is, like, the book was selling for about $15. They put up the cost, but I would get about 60 cents for every right. one that sold. Right. So, And a lot of people don't know that. No. A lot of people don't really, they think that when they buy a book for an author, the author gets to keep a third or something like that. Yeah, I've asked people many times, I said, how, say the book sold for 15, and, and I would ask people, how much of that do you think I get? And they usually say half. Right. You know, they think, and right. they're just amazed when they right. find out how little you get. Now, like, for instance, my new publisher gives you a little bit more, but my book is going to sell on Amazon for $18. And I will get eighty-five cents. Wow! So and still, yeah, still. A, a fresh, <clears throat> so you tiny have fraction. to sell. You have to be like John Grisham or somebody like that and sell million. Well, right. They don't care anyway because they get such a big advance that they don't worry about. You right. know, like right. uh, Michelle Obama probably got several million right. advance, and she does. You know, right? But, Whether they sell five copies or five right. million, they're they're still happy either yeah. way. They're they're. Yeah. They never have to return the advance. Yeah. Well, I, I remember it was kind of funny. I I went back to New York to talk to the people at Simon and & Schuster, and, and I said to them, because at that time, I was making about $10,000 a month just off of selling the book out of my garage. Right. And it was more, I was a teacher, and that was way more money than I was making in teaching. That was probably twice as much as I right. was making in teaching. And so when I was sitting down with these people, it was Simon and Schuster, I said, you know, I said, I'm doing really well with this book financially. And they I, were surprised. Uh, they, they, well, I they thought, didn't know. They didn't know how well I was doing. No, I know. But I think you told me once that they said, had I known how much money you were making. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But anyway. I would have told you never to sign the deal. <laughs> I told them I was doing really well with it, and I said, so you're going to have to give me a good reason to give it up, because I knew I would make less with a mainline publisher, and so the associate publisher, she said, well, I'll give you two reasons uh, that you should sell it to. She said, number one, we're going to sell way more copies than you're going to sell out of your garage. She said, number two, you're going to make way more money. One of those was true, and one of them was not true, okay? 
the first one was true. It's right. it's sold uh, a half a million now, and it's it's sold all over the world in different languages and and so on. Um, but I. I'm not making as much money. It's still selling, but it was okay. Uh, I mean, I'm not. I don't regret the decision because it was nice to see my book become a big seller and do well out in the marketplace. And then they signed me to do f uh, three more books, so I did four books with them, and I did get a substantial advance on each one of them. And um, the three of them have done well. One of them has not done well, but uh, and you're I, and you're happy that you don't have to do the fulfillment of right, right, all those yeah. Books. They That's the big headache. They do that, and I get royalty checks twice a year. Life's greatest lessons is still selling pretty well, but the the royalties, you know, they they've gone down. Sure, and that's natural. The, the right. book is. I actually wrote that book thirty years ago, but I sold it to Simon and Schuster and. I think it was 2003 or four right. around in there. Yes, yeah. about halfway through the, its life. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. it's been so, so, I, so tell us about this new book that you've written. Yeah, about. okay. The, the new book is, is called The Power of Good News. And the subtitle is Feeding Your Mind with What's Good for Your Heart. In other words, what's good for your health. And uh, I had been thinking about it for actually a really, really long time because it goes back to something I did with in school uh, in my teaching. Uh, we we started every class with sharing good news and it was just a real picker-upper and it, that, that even happened kind of by accident. You know, I was a social studies teacher in high school and I taught classes like um, American government, United States history, world studies, and I always felt that there should be a current event component uh, in to make those courses more real, even even U.S. history, you know, because history, what you're supposed to do is study history to un understand the, the present. And so there was a, a little homework assignment that I gave um, every day, and it only took 10 minutes to do it, so it was easy, it was quick, and the kids got 10 points every time they did it, if they did it right. And... And then what we would do at the beginning of every class, I would put like the name of a person or the name of a country or an event on the board. And I'd say, who knows about this? And we would talk about it. And we'd do this for about five or 10 minutes. And the kids became really well informed. But one day a kid said to me, uh, gosh, Mr. Urban, for being such a positive guy, you sure give a negative homework assignment. And I said, me negative and and they said something that i hadn't really given a lot of thought to they said well all the all the news is such bad news it's just it's depressing you know and so on i said yeah you've got a point there and then i it stuck with me later that she said i give a negative assignment and i realized we were starting every class with something doing something negative talking about the news and and that, this is way back in the mid to late 60s mm -hmm. and nothing has changed right. <laughs> uh in fact what has changed is that the the media has more technology to bombard us with images of explosions and people dying and all of that type of stuff so it's actually worse now um have you been? Have you read uh, Stephen Covey's uh, Enlightenment Now or heard his thesis? Oh, not, not Stephen like, Covey. Like, yes, I have read sorry, the book. Stephen Covey. Yeah. Uh, Stephen Pinker. Uh, Pinker, uh, yeah, from yeah. the Ivy League, Harvard. From Harvard, I, yeah. I think. And, yeah. and I also read Factfulness by, oh, yeah, yeah. by Hans Rosling. Right. I mentioned him right. quite a bit in the, sure. in the book because he, 
he uh, brought everybody up to date on statistics and showed you how good the world was and how it's getting better all the time and everything. And right. yeah, I, I love that book. And Bill Gates, who reads enormous number of books, he said that was one of his favorites also. Correct. And uh, so, so. Why is it, how do you think that human beings tend to seem to have an attraction to negative news? We're wired that way, Francis. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, that's one of the things I learned. We have a negativity bias. And we have a, I don't know how you pronounce it, amygdala. There's a little neuron or something inside our body that alerts us to danger. danger. Yeah. And so we, and and if you go all the way back, as far back as you can go in the history of human beings, they had that built into them. Remember, they're out walking around looking for food, but animals bigger and stronger and faster and meaner than them are looking for food too, which might be you. And noises will protect you. You know, if you hear them, uh, you see an animal coming. Uh, so it's a, it's a negativity bias, and it's a, it's a safety uh, thing that's that's built into us. So negative news gets our attention. Like for instance, I I never tell people don't stick your head in the sand and not ever watch the news. You have to know what's going on for your own safety, you know? Right. And so, but, but it's true. I, I still remember when I was in college, uh, one of my classmates asked uh, the professor, why is all the news bad? And, and he said, cause uh, good news doesn't sell bad news sells good news. doesn't." And that's, that's still true. There are right now, there are a lot of people and, uh, organizations that are trying to get more news, more good news, not only on television, but particularly on the on the web. There, there are a lot of websites now. Uh, I subscribe to one called the Good News Network, and mm-hmm. you get four or five really uplifting, positive stories every day, and they're brief. And that's great. Uh, and so I found a bunch of those, and I've written about them in, in the book. <clears throat> Still, you, you're about to turn 80 years old. Yes. So happy birthday. Yeah. Uh, by the way, I'm wearing a mask for, we're face to face. And so if I sound kind of funny on the audio, that's why. Uh, but uh, just for your own, for everybody's safety, 2020 has been, it seems to me in my shorter life than yours, one of the worst years on record. It seems like since a long time that we've had such a negative year. How do you make sense of that? How, do, do you still have to struggle to find the positive news in 2020? Or are you getting depressed yourself? <laughs> well, I, I do everything I can to avoid getting depressed. Like, for instance, I do watch the news every night. I watch Lester Holt on NBC for, mm-hmm. for a half an hour. But that's about all I can take. Sometimes Kathy and I will switch over to PBS, and that's on for an hour but I can't watch the whole thing, especially after watching half hour. I just have to turn it off and watch something that's mm-hmm. kind of lighthearted or, or you know, some, something like that. But I would agree with you. <clears throat> As I say, I've, I've lived 80 years. 2020 is the most down, negative bombardment year of my lifetime. I mean, we've had so many things, starting with COVID and then the shutdown or the not the, not the complete shutdown, but the, um, 
um, the economy, you know, and many people closing business and losing jobs and, and the all fires. that kind of stuff. All of the weather things, yeah, one being the fire and then the, the storms. George Floyd. Yeah, yeah, and then the racial <laughs> things on top of that and the political division the is election, worse. Election uh, <clears throat> shenanigans. Worse than it's ever been, yeah, and I'm actually, as we sit here a few days before the election, I'm concerned about what's going to happen after the election. Mm. I think we could be in for something really horrible. I hope not, but, mm. but uh, yeah, and it's, uh, I, I think, in fact, when the book comes out next May, I think a lot of people are going to assume, oh, he wrote this book because we had a year of really, really horrible news, and now he wants to come up with good news. But the truth of the matter is, and I put in the introduction, this book is not a response to 2020. Um, I conceived of this idea a long time ago. I actually started writing it in 2018. I wrote two or three, about three chapters. I got turned down by all these publishers again with the same reason uh, good news just not going to sell. People don't want to read a book about good news. And I thought it was much more about just good news. <clears throat> and I just, you know, stayed with it. Um, mm -hmm. And one of the things I learned about the main publishing industry is if your most recent book did not do well, and, and I, I wrote a book called The Ten Commandments of Common Sense, it, it did not do well. Every other publisher has the numbers, and they'll see that it did a lot worse than your previous books, and you're, you're kind of down. So I, <clears throat> I just kept shopping around, and I got turned down by a couple agents also who said good news wouldn't sell. And then I found this uh, Barrett Kohler, the publisher over in Oakland. They're just, uh, <clears throat> I think, really outstanding, very thorough. They bring the, the author in as a partner. I, I wasn't consulted on anything when I worked with the mainline publisher before, and I've been involved in every aspect of this particular mm -hmm. book. And so it's been a delight to to uh, work for them and uh, they're very thorough even in the in the writing of the book you know I've actually wrote it three times I wrote it once turned it into my editor turned out it was too long I, I, he also corrected a number of things and then I wrote it again made it a lot better because my editor is really outstanding what what makes a good editor <clears throat> he just sees things that could be sharper uh, more clear uh is it, he, is it like a concept or like a sentence or both it could be both yeah mm. yeah and and he got me on some quotes i use a lot of quotes in books and he had a couple he said i'm a real stickler about that he said i follow him really closely and sometimes quotes are wrong you know, like there's a famous quote attributed to uh will rogers strangers are friends i haven't met yet and I've seen that quote a hundred times, and I put it in the book, but he said, no, it's not legitimate. Uh -huh. And there are a lot of those. Oh, sure. You know, the go my, my favorite one is uh, when Abraham Lincoln said, don't believe everything you read on the internet. Oh, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's uh, yeah, that sounds like something Lincoln would say. <laughs> so any, anyway, but he, uh, and he did ask me to shorten it a lot, and as I went through it, I I had to cut about 40%, and that's a lot after all that work of writing, but I realized it got me to 
say something in much fewer words, which yeah. makes it more concise. And that was something that I remembered. I had a great writing instructor at uh, USF, and he always said, when you write something, get away from it, and then go back and read it later and ask yourself, can I say the same thing in fewer words? Oh, yeah, and, absolutely. And, it's, it's, um, it's amazing. So How that, many words did you start off with, Hal? And you know, then, roughly, I mean... Did you have like 60,000 words at the beginning and went down to 40,000? No, it was, it was more than that. And I, I can't remember the numbers because one of the things that I, I learned to do, I, what I don't do when I write is I count pages, I don't count words. And my pages had more words on them than the book will have. And so when I turned it into him, he said, uh, we, we've got to cut you know, hundred—I don't know how many thousand words, but it was—it mm. was a lot. It was about forty percent of the book. Okay, so yeah, so basically, yeah. you cut it nearly in half. Wow, yeah, amazing. so I—I I went back through it and and uh, and and that ability to cut, I think, improves with more time that's passed. So, for example, I'm writing my tenth—it's the ten-year anniversary of my Hidden Europe book. It's been that and long, and then yeah. suddenly. I, I'm having to edit it because it's coming out in Chinese. And so right. I, and I had to rewrite it, update all the stats. Right. I am chopping like crazy. Right. And I thought right. with my own hubris that I was a really tight writer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I thought, no, there's what, what can you cut out of this 750 page book? It's great. Yeah. <laughs> I'm reading it now. I'm like, oh my God, cut that, cut that, cut that, cut that. I'm cutting like maybe a third of the book probably in the end. I probably, if I had a real editor, I could probably cut half. Yeah, I guess they may all be different because one of the things that happened with this is after I rewrote it for him, then they hire three outside reviewers, they call them, Mm -hmm. and all three of them take a crack at it. And then I get those three manuscripts back with all of their suggestions. It was kind of interesting. Um, Two of them really liked it and made some nice complimentary things along the way along with some suggestions of things to cut or things to add or clarify or leave out or whatever but the third person did not like the book he mm-hmm. he said uh, I didn't reach my goal and he would not buy the book mm-hmm. but he was the one that gave me the best advice mm-hmm. and 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 he made some really good uh, suggestions out of how to even cut more and, and say more and so on. I remember writing him a... Say a, more with less, fewer words. Yeah, yeah. And, and I remember writing him a thank you. He said he'd never been thanked before, but, he's a, <laughs> but, uh, but I said, even though you didn't like the book and wouldn't buy it, I, I said, I appreciate the professionalism with which you, uh, you know, edited and corrected it. And I said, I think I uh, made every change that you suggested and the book is better because of it. So. So I was appreciative of the fact that my publisher, Barrett Kohler, that they, that they did that. It was a lot more work for me, uh, you know, to, to write it again with uh, a third time, you know, with the suggestions of these three people. But again, I think the finished product is, is better. Right. But, so right. every publisher does it differently. So break down the book a little bit to how you organized it and and it's coming out in may of 2021 right um wh- how does it look now and in other words what what should readers expect from it well uh both i think two things number one you uh you become more aware of the effect that good news has on you good news is is kind of a magic phrase it's uplifting yeah, you know, and um, 
And then the other, the other thing is, it isn't just good news in the newspaper or on TV. It's good things happening all around you. And mm-hmm. this includes, there's a chapter on being thankful. Uh, there's one of the things I got into while I was writing the book and I didn't know I was going to be getting into is called neuroscience. It's how the brain operates and what stimulates what we call the happy hormones and all of that kind of stuff. And I think one of the most valuable lessons I ever learned is something my mom taught me was to be thankful for what you have. My mom said when I was a little kid, she said the happiest people in the world aren't the people who have the most. The happiest people in the world are the people who are thankful for what they do have. And and I really think there's a lot of wisdom. In Absolutely. That one one of my big takeaways from going to Africa is that you know you see people who are much happier than many Americans right. with far less. Yes. And, yes. and and I'm like you come back here and I'm like I'm so grateful to take a hot shower. I'm Absolutely. Like, wow, yeah. In fact, just that water comes out of the pipes reliably right that when i flick on the electricity it turns on like yeah. like a miracle like wow this is amazing yeah that you know that i have a car that's reliable i have clean roads and you know just like it goes on and on just yeah. gratitude is su- such a powerful force it is we that we, we estimate yeah we tend to take things for granted i remember we had three girls from china stay with us about three or four weeks one summer and and when I was taking them to the airport to go home, I was asking some of the things that stood out for them. And, and one of the girls said, oh, your roads. And <laughs> I said, what do you mean? And she said, they're all paved. Right. And I mean, China is advancing sure. enormously, uh, you know, and they probably have a lot more paved roads now than they did. But we take that for granted. Nobody would ever, if I said, list all the things that you're thankful for in your life that you use. And so nobody would ever say paved roads. Right. You know, and that's just one of, of millions of things, you know, and, and just the cleanliness. I I was showing Mustafa is my brother-in-law and I was showing him a video of, uh, the view outside of a window of where I was house sitting. And, he's like, wow, that's, that's such a nice courtyard. I said, that's not, it's not our courtyard. That's the street oh, outside. Okay. It was just a street in San Mateo, which is a suburb. <laughs> and, and he was just like, what? Why is it so clean? Oh, yeah. You know, because in, in Africa, you often see trash right, everywhere. Yeah. You see just people milling about. Just It's dirty. It's dirt yeah. road, whatever. It's, yeah. it's not, and he was just like, that could only be a courtyard in his mind. It could only be a <laughs> private place where you... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah. anyway, it's just funny. It's, it's, it, yeah, there's a lot to be uh, grateful for. Um, so, so who's the target audience for the book? You know, that's a question that came up when I first proposed the book. And, and I, to me, it's anybody who enjoys reading and wants to read something uplifting and somebody who wants to understand a little bit more about how to put positive stuff into your mind. You know, when I, when I wrote, um, my second book, it's, it's done pretty well, too. It's called Positive Words, Powerful Results. It's basically about the impact that positive words coming out of your mouth can have on not only yourself, but on, but on other people. And this one, this book actually goes back farther than that. You can only have positive things coming out of your mouth if you have positive things in your head. And how do you get positive things in your head? You you either put them there or allow them to be put in. Because uh, 
the first chapter in this book is about what goes into your mind. And that, that's a main theory of the book. I, I was going to have that as chapter two, but my editor wanted it to be chapter one. Uh, Francis, you're, you probably are familiar with a man named Zig Ziglar. Yes, of course. Okay, well, when I was in my, it's probably in my early 30s, uh, I was starting to read books. They call them self-help books. I don't like that title and that's what this one will be called because it's an oxymoron you're not helping yourself you're letting somebody who wrote the book help you you know Mm -hmm. but but I call them personal development books right and I started reading a lot of books like that whether it was the power of positive thinking or uh, how to win friends and influence people whatever those are very uplifting books and they give you good ideas about how to be a better person and and think more positively and so on. Well, anyway, uh, <clears throat> a friend of mine said when I was first started again on this, he said, have you heard of Zig Ziglar? And I thought he was joking. You know, I thought Zig Ziglar. And <laughs> Sounds so it like turned, a yeah, it turned fake out, name. <laughs> it turned out he was a real guy. Not only was he Zig Ziglar, but he was from Yazoo City, Mississippi. <laughs> that, uh, you know, and I thought that was a joke too. But but anyway, he, he said the guy's not only... Uh, written some good books but he's an unbelievable speaker and very inspiring and and so on and i just it was one of those times in my teaching career it's very very stressful a lot of people don't understand that but but sometimes we call in sick for what we call a mental health day you just need you didn't need a day off you know and zig ziglar was speaking over in oakland doing an all-day workshop and uh, so I called in sick for one of my mental health days. And I went over there, and it was very, very life-changing day, uh, was particularly the first start of it. He, he came out, and he told a story that, that I've never forgotten. He said, would you allow anyone to walk into your living room? And, of course, I'm when somebody's telling a story, just like when you read a novel, your mind fills in the details, you know? And he said, would you allow anybody to walk into your living room with a 50-pound sack of trash over each shoulder and then dump that trash right in the middle of your living room? And I'm getting a picture of my living room at home and somebody doing that. And I said, my God, why is he asking this question? It's ridiculous. Nobody Nobody would ever allow that. And then he he just kind of remained silent for a while because he knew people were probably thinking what I was thinking. Why would you ask such a dumb question? And, and he said, raise your hand if you would. And, of course, no hands went up. And he says, do you allow anybody to dump trash into your mind? And, boy, that got everybody's attention. It really got mine. And, he, and then he went on and talked about how much input we take. And, of course, we take in a lot more now. I've got some numbers in the book. I can't remember what they are, but they're megabytes of, you know, stuff that we take in. And then the question was, how much of it can you control? How much of it can you keep out? And and how much of it can you choose to put in? Like you, you can read a trashy book or you can read a good book. You, you choose or you can watch trash on TV or you can watch good stuff. You can be around negative people or you can be around positive people and so it really made me aware of of what goes into my mind and that's chapter one 
in in the book. It's based on you, uh, you are what you are. Zig Ziglar's point was you are what you are because of what goes into your mind. Very well said. So. Now, how you're, I've known you for years. You're a very positive person, mm -hmm. but you're not Superman. In other words, right. there's, there's moments where you get down, where you get depressed, where you might just get frustrated or whatever. What are tricks that you use to kind of get yourself out of that to, or at least to avoid the downward spiral? Well, there's, and, and I mentioned these things in the book. There are a number of things that you can do when, when you get down. No, number one is, is, I think I mentioned to you earlier, I, I work out twice a day. Everybody can't do that. But one of Seven the Seven miles. Well, yeah, I do. I walk four miles in the morning and I walk three miles later uh, in the morning. But I also do a lot of other stuff, too, you know, uh, stomach crunches and, and push-ups and all of that kind of stuff because my gym is closed right now. But but anyway, I do know that that's, that gets the endorphins going. And I, I forget, there's four four of them that they call the happy hormones. I can't always remember what they are, but they, they get those things going. And so oxytocin might be, one yeah, of that's, them. that's one of them. <clears throat> and, um, dopamine, maybe? dopamine, that's yeah. another one. Yeah. yeah. And, um, so that, that's, if I do that every day, it's going to keep me at a, at a pretty good level. Uh, obviously there are things that happen that, you don't have control over that are make you sad, but there are still th ways to deal with it. One is to, again, be, be with friends that you like, or at least t talk to people. They, they give you a lift. You can read uplifting information. You can even music. Uh, I still remember way back, I was about 29 or 30 when I went through my divorce and, and, and back in those days, uh, uh, if you were a man, you didn't get custody of the kids. Uh, and so my kids, my three boys were gone. They were two, four, and five. And that was the worst time of my life. And I do remember at that time, one of the things that did give me a lift was uh, Credence Clearwater uh, Revival Group. John Fogarty will always be my favorite group because every time I heard that music, it just gave me a little lift that, that I needed. So reading and being around people, exercising, um, just thinking about good things. And again, being thankful. There are a lot of ways that you can, you know, lift, lift your spirit. One of the things I point out in the book, I said, this is not a rah-rah, life is beautiful, and you should never be unhappy or anything like that. That would be very unrealistic, I think. But we, I think we... You know, like you, you're full of adventure and you're full of uh, discovery, you know, and, and all of that kind of stuff uh, lifts our spirits, keeps us energized. You think that society suffers for, uh, a bit of ageism, in other words, uh, people against old people, which is contrary to most societies on the planet, actually. At least American society, we tend to celebrate youth and tend to denigrate or at least not mm -hmm. value uh, older people. When you were a young pup of 20 years old, how did you see the older generation? You know, I, I was probably the same way, mainly because it's a culture that we grow up in. Uh, if, if you grow up as particularly an Asian culture, what two groups are the most respected people in Asia? Teachers and elderly people. 
And so I... And now you're both of those. Yeah, I know. And, <laughs> and I thought, man, I, I should have grown up in Asia. I'd, I'd be king of the world, you know. But it, it's just like I say, it's a, it's culture. that we're, We've always been that way. And I, and I realized once I hit probably 65, 66, somewhere in there, um, my speaking invitations changed a lot because the young teachers didn't want to listen to somebody with this wealth of experience. Uh, they wanted to listen to younger people. Mm-hmm. And, uh, <clears throat> and, I, and there are a lot of other ways I've, I've experienced it too. It just, it's, a, it's our culture, and you can't really change it. I was just reading the sports page this morning where uh, Dusty Baker who used to manage the Giants and this year managed the the Houston Astros. He's 71, and he was the oldest manager in the majors, and he said he has experienced a lot of ageism, that they think that these young guys with analytics are going to be better managers. And then, I don't know if you saw, but the Chicago White Sox just hired Rudy LaRussa, mm-hmm. and he's 76. Mm-hmm. And uh, he will be now five years older than the other old guy in the <clears throat> in the majors but uh but yeah it it definitely exists and there isn't uh anything you can do about it. I mean people are amazed that I'm still speaking I'm still writing and and so on but I just uh you know didn't make up my mind that I'm going to stop living when I get older uh, make the most out of it we are recording this on Halloween, yeah. and so in a couple of days is the United States election. By the time this show, this show airs, we will have a, well, we may not have a new president, but uh, we'll have had the election. So um, uh, give your, your, your prediction for the election so that you can, you can either gloat or, uh, or not. Well, uh, it, it's hard to predict because I remember, uh, I'll tell you what my prediction was. Four years ago, You're... <laughs> I've never been so far off yeah, in too. my life. Yeah. I thought Trump was such a joke that I thought he won't even win one state. <laughs> I mean, I said that, and and I mean, he did get killed in the popular vote, but mm-hmm. but he he won the election and he and he pulled it off, and and uh, so I'm a little more cautious now. I was just watching something this morning on the um, on the internet there's a guy that predicted uh four years ago that he was one of the few guys that did he predicted trump was going to win uh-huh. and he did and then, so they went to him just a few days ago and he predicted that trump is going to win again oh wow and um i'm hoping he's wrong um based on all the polls you know it shows that um Let's see. Biden needs 270 electoral okay, but votes. So this and, time you think he might win more than one state. <clears throat> yeah, he, he, he will. Well, one. So give me how many states he's going to win or how many electoral. Yeah, I throw out a number. So you I can, mean, they've got the, the things there and they're showing Biden with 290. And I can't even remember what what Trump has, 100 and some. But there are a number of so states. If Biden will might have 290, 300 or something. That's that's your prediction. <clears throat> Or yeah, I, well, I'm just hoping it's true. I mean, I, I have to give them some credence in mm-hmm. in all the scientific polling that they're that they're doing, and which they had scientific polling in 2016. Yeah, yeah <laughs> right. 
and um, <laughs> so, really got us far. <laughs> but you know, I was I was a history teacher, and and I uh, did a lot on the research on the presidents. Did my master's thesis on one of our presidents. And Which I, one? Truman. Okay. And and uh, I just. Uh, you know, I hear people say he's the best president we've ever had, and my my thought is he's the worst president we've ever had because he's. You're talking a, about Trump or Truman? Uh, <laughs> Trump. Okay. okay. As, as, uh, uh, he, you know, to me, it's his character, and I've mm-hmm. been involved in character. Yeah, that's for a very long true. Yeah, and, yeah. and and so uh, for those who don't know you, Hal yeah. is all about proper good character. I mean, yeah. it's kind of like. Old school values, you might yeah. say, but uh, yeah, Trump is the antithesis of of, of yeah. much of what you preach. <laughs> right, but you know, I I just got an email yesterday from a guy who's written one of the classic books on good character. It's called Educating for Character, and he's a fabulous person. He's a very devout Catholic. He he lives by the teachings of his faith. He's one of the nicest human beings I've ever known. Uh, and character is the ultimate for him. He's going to vote for Trump. Okay. And mm-hmm. and the reason is he it turns out as brilliant as he is, a PhD in developmental psychology, um, he's what we call a one issue voter. He uh-huh. votes on one issue and it's abortion. Abortion. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and and so he sent this thing out that sh- it was a list of about twenty things that Trump has done. Uh, for for anti-abortion, right, right, right. and uh, personally, I, I'm opposed to abortion, but I don't. I'm not in. You don't let that uh, rule your life. Or, no, or it's not right, the litmus test, right? And and I would not tell a woman mm-hmm. if I was making law. I would I would not mm-hmm. tell her you you can't do that. But but whether I like it or dislike it, I'm not a single issue, issue voter. Right. I I want to vote for the whole thing, and I want a person who represents the United States, who cares about science, believes in science, right. a, a person who um, cares about the environment and believes mm-hmm. that that we're having problems with our environment, and, and those types of things. And, and again, the character. Uh, Biden has said a number of times, you know his character, you know my character. Right. I want a person of good character in the White House. So... Since the time of Aristotle, I think people have been saying the young generation is going to hell. You know, yeah. where they're just they're they're going the wrong way. They're mm-hmm. degenerates. They're whatever. Uh, certainly in the '60s, as you probably well remember, I wasn't born yet, but in the '60s, certainly with all the hippies going on and the mm-hmm. drugs and the free sex and all that stuff, you know, I could imagine that the old people at that time were just saying, "We're going to hell in a handbasket." <laughs> yeah, so, I. What's I've, your view of the 2020 I've, generation? I've never been one of those people that think my generation was the best. Mm-hmm. I, I just never have. I've always thought that each generation coming along makes life better in, mm-hmm. in their way. And I still I still do believe that. I remember in the 60s, I, did, I walked uh, a very long, peaceful protest walk against the Vietnam War, and my mm-hmm. dad thought I was some kind of communist or something, you know, he just couldn't, and he was a Democrat, but he, he couldn't, he couldn't understand it. And, uh, but I've just, uh, you know, if you look at all the progress we've made in, in the whole world, it's the generation that come behind us that are improving on changes that were made in the past. And I don't, um, a lot of people my age, they're always talking about the 
the young people coming up. But you're right. You go back to Aristotle, or they they all said they all said that kind of stuff, right. and the, and they're going to continue to do it. Was Tom Brokaw wrote a book called "The Greatest Third Generation"? generation. That's right. that, no, that wasn't the greatest generation. He mm-hmm. that was just his generation, and that's kind of an ego thing to, mm-hmm. you know, to say that kind of stuff. And he and he's one of those guys that Brokaw himself is unbelievably right wing. You know, mm-hmm. so. So final words, uh, so people can get your book, I'm sure, on uh, bookstores and Amazon, that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, it, it'll be, um, it, it's actually already on Amazon for oh, pre-order, believe okay. it or not. The, okay. the cover is and it's $18? Designed, yeah, it's about 18 bucks. But, uh, you know, I, I tell my friends, you, you can get it on Amazon. You can get it directly from me from my website, oh, halurban.com. Okay, and there uh, you get to keep, a, is that part of your contract that you got to, Purchase them at a wholesale price. Yeah, they. I can. Uh, depending on how many I buy, the more I buy, the cheaper I, I get them. You know, but normally I would buy them for half price. Got it. And uh, so if the book sells for eighteen, I would buy them for nine. Got it. And and then have to compete with with, with Amazon's price. Free shipping price. of Amazon. <laughs> yeah. Right. And so I wouldn't be able to compete with Amazon Prime because if you're on Amazon Prime, you don't pay for the shipping. Sure. And I, I would have to charge you know right, shipping, right, right. but that, that's not too much right so, right very good so but, that's that's exciting and uh people can go to halurban.com to learn more about how all his books how many total books have you read? eight uh, this will oh. be the eighth one and i'm redoing my website now because i had new pictures taken and then we'll add we haven't added the new book yet but we we will okay very good and uh you have one more book at least probably in your or you're not sure. Yeah, I you probably said many times that's my last book and you can no, decide. Right no, no, because I I have to stay busy and, and yeah. writing is very it really uh as you know, uh, you get into it yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and you it's addictive. And you feel that you're using your time productively. Right. You know, and you wanna con- and you're also contributing something, hopefully. Right. You know, and I, I think what I feel best about this book is I think I think people will enjoy it. It'll give them a lift. It'll give them some ideas about what what to put into their what to put into their minds. And they came up with the cover, and you were able to input it. You know, we yeah. we did uh, we actually did five rounds on that cover. Probably all together, I had originally twenty options, and then I eliminated a bunch of them and then they came back with some new ideas and they kept coming back and it was supposed to go three rounds but it went five and then it has to do with the colors and all of that kind of stuff and i got a lot of input from a lot of people and the name of the book how did you guys come up with the name uh we did a survey monkey okay uh to see and and gave them about three or four options Mm -hmm. and the power i just wanted to call it good news but the my editor i think wanted some additional words and he he mentioned in an email to me something about the power of good words. And I said, why don't you put that one, uh, the power of good news? I mean, I, I said, why don't you put that one in as one of the titles? So mm. we did. And then um, <clears throat> and then we picked a subtitle. And so the full, give us the full name of the book. Okay. The, the main title is the, the Power of Good News. And the subtitle is Feeding Your Mind with What's Good for Your Heart. Hal Urban, a pleasure as always. Thank you, Francis. And that concludes this episode of the Wander Learn podcast, where we explore travel, technology, and transformation. 
If you'd like to see the show notes with links to what we talked about, or if you'd like to comment on the show, or if you'd like to ask me a question, then go to wanderlearn.com and click on this episode. If you'd like to connect with me, just remember FTAPON. That's my first initial and my last name. FTAPON is the username I use on all social media. You can also get to my website by going to ftapon.com. And here's one last reason to remember FTAPON. If you like what I do and would like to get rewarded for supporting my projects, then go to patreon.com slash ftapon. That's where you can pick up some remarkable rewards for as little as $2 a month. And now for five quick favors. Number one, subscribe to the WanderLearn podcast. Two, download it. Three, share it. Four, review it somewhere. And five, sign up for my newsletter at wanderlearn.com. Our theme music was composed by Eric Stratman. This is Francis Tapon encouraging you to wander and learn.